Good morning. Good to see you here. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to take a break from the Gospel of Mark as we make our way through the Advent season. So Luke chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 22. So there's a way in which the story of the Bible could accurately be described as one of anticipation. At any point in the biblical story, you could sum up one aspect of the mood of the atmosphere with the word hope, and the object of that hope being God himself. The longing that is described in the Bible is fueled by an acknowledgement of humanity's failure, of our inability to affect any lasting change in ourselves let alone in the world at large, without the intervention of God himself. And so Advent is a time in which we relive, we reenact together the anticipation that the faithful followers of God experienced in the years and in the centuries leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. God become flesh, the intervention. God come to live among us. And so this morning we're going to repeat the centuries-long tradition of retelling one part of the story, just a small part of the story, with the goal that it will in turn stir our hope and our longing for the second coming of Christ. He has come, and yet he is coming again, and all shall be well. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're gathered this morning as your church, as your people, called by your son Jesus, and redeemed through his blood. And Lord, we're grateful this morning that you have intervened in human history, that you've come to dwell among us in the person of your son. And so Lord, we pray that this morning, this Advent season in our lives in general would be characterized by hope, by an eager expectation that you will come again. That even as you came the first time, the guarantee, the certainty, the historical fact that you came once, you will come Again, it's easy for us to lose sight of that in the chaos of the world around us. So remind us this morning, reground our hope, we pray, in your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So Luke 2, 22, we'll we'll read and we'll make a few comments along the way. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So let's set the stage together. The birth of Christ has already happened, so we're we're jumping ahead a little bit. And Joseph and Mary have no doubt been in Bethlehem for about the last month. So if you read back in Leviticus 12, we won't go there, uh, the the time that they would make this offering in the temple is 40 days after the birth. And so a little little over a month after the birth of Christ, uh, Joseph and Mary, they make their way from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to make the necessary sacrifices at the temple. It's just a few miles, five, six miles, something like that. And so just notice a couple of things from these verses with me. Uh, Joseph and Mary are, and this is obvious, but Joseph and Mary are faithful Israelites, they are following the letter of the law from Leviticus chapter 12. And you can go back and you can read that 
at some point. But why is this important? Because when we read through the Gospels, we find that one key characteristic of Christ is that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so even at this stage in his life, where from a human perspective, he's not even in control. Now, from a divine, sovereign perspective, he is. But from a human perspective, he's not in control. Joseph and Mary are in control. His fulfillment of the law begins before he has a say in it as an infant. And so his fulfillment of the Old Testament law begins with the faithfulness of his parents. Jesus is the perfect mediator between God and man because he perfectly obeyed the law. And so an application of that for us as we think about this as parents, those of us who are parents, is the significance of simple, faithful obedience. God uses our faithfulness. God uses our obedience in the lives of our kids. He takes small acts of faithfulness to what he has called us to, and he uses it. Another observation from these verses, though. Joseph and Mary are poor. Again, we won't go back to Leviticus 12, but where it says that they would bring two turtle doves, that's a provision for those who don't have means. If you have money, you bring a lamb. If you don't have money, you bring birds, because birds are cheaper. And so this is an indicator that Joseph and Mary did not have money. They did not come from an affluent family. They did not come from, a, from the, the advantage of having wealth. And so consider together the humility of Christ. He did not come to a palace. He did not come to even a city. Not to wealthy, affluent parents, but to a life of poverty. In one sense, Matt mentioned this last week, his entire experience on earth was one of poverty in comparison to his heavenly home. But even beyond that, relative to the society he was born in, he was born into a poor family. 2 Corinthians 8 says this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so this truth, as we consider the humility of Christ. Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2 this way. It should, it should motivate us to follow his example. As we consider the humility of Christ, it should influence us. We should be drawn to it. We should want to emulate it. Paul in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is it. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Have this mind among yourselves. That's the call as we consider the humility of Christ. Another observation. God can and wants to use you even if it seems like you don't bring anything to the table. None of us in one sense, as we just talked about in the catechism, have much to offer. But as we think of ourselves in relation to our skills or our abilities, our education, our credentials, our wealth, Oftentimes, I think we tend to uh, count ourselves out from what God can do through us and with us because of what we feel like we don't have, what we don't offer. Mary and Joseph are used powerfully by God despite the fact that they bring nothing to the table. And there's a way in which, and, and the primary uh, the thought to keep in mind as, as, as we think about this, is that God does this because he uses little people in big ways so that it's him that receives the glory. And so in whatever way you feel like you don't have something to offer God, consider that an asset, not a liability, because God works through 
weakness. God works through inability. God works through lack. And through that takes the glory. One more application from this section, then we'll move on. Christ did not feel entitled to a life of ease and luxury. And, and as Americans, I think this one, this one strikes home for us because we, on some level, feel entitled by the nature of where we live, the time that we live in, to a life of ease and luxury. We feel entitled to comfort. And as his disciples, we, we should want to follow his example. He didn't feel entitled to it. He felt called to a life of sacrifice, of humble sacrifice for the good of the people around him, and in his case, for the good of the world. And so our lives also should be marked by humble sacrifice, knowing that our ultimate treasure is in heaven. Consider these words from John Flavel. If Christ did not sit down to rest in heaven till he had finished his work on earth, then it is in vain for us to think of rest till we have finished our work, as Christ also did his. How willing are we to find rest here and to dream of that which Christ never found in this world, nor any ever found before us. Oh, think not of resting till you have done working and done sinning. Your life and your labors must end together. Look down at verse 25 with me. We're introduced here to an interesting character in the biblical story, Simeon. Now there was in Jerusalem a man whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And so here in Jerusalem, we're introduced for the first time to this man, Simeon, and also for the last time. He never shows up again in the biblical story. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he came from. People have conjectured it for the last 2,000 years who he is, but there's really no indication of who he was except for this one excerpt from the Gospel of Luke. And he's righteous and devout. Uh, this passage is, is intended to stir those same qualities in us. And so we don't know much about him. We know little of him, but we know that he was faithful and we know that he was waiting. He was faithful and he was waiting. We learn in the coming verses that this hope, this expectation, this waiting was the defining characteristic in his life. It was what he was about to the extent that when the waiting was over, when the thing arrived that he had been waiting for, his life could now end in peace. But what was he waiting for? Look at verse 25. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, there's a way in which, when you read this, you might think, this is an occurrence, this is an event, this is a historical uh, event that he's waiting for. I don't think that's what's meant here specifically, though. Uh, We'll kind of take the long way around the barn here to arrive at what, what this means. As you carefully read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you realize that humanity is in trouble. Every human leader fails. Every human effort to fix what is broken, to correct what is wrong, ultimately ends in disaster. The line of King David, as the pinnacle of that, seems to end in the Old Testament in sin, in disarray, and then in captivity. But also threaded throughout the whole Bible, and particularly the prophets, if you read carefully, is the theme that God himself will come to do what no mere human or nation could do. Where Adam failed, where Noah failed, where Abraham failed, where David failed, ultimately where Israel as a nation failed, 
God himself would step in to succeed. There's no righteous, no one, not one. Each of us is both perpetrator and victim in this fallen world. We're both sinner and sinned against. And so something, or more specifically, someone from outside the chaos is needed to step into it and speak consolation, to bring peace between people and nations, but more, pe- more importantly, between God and humanity. And so the prophet Isaiah contains many of these promises of God's Messiah, of God's salvation, but the one most relevant to our passage is found in Isaiah chapter 40. So let me read these verses for us. Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. The prophet says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And so hold, hold that thought as I read John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaiah 40, verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. John 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what Simeon is waiting for is not necessarily an event or a historical occurrence. He's waiting for a person. He's waiting for Messiah. He's waiting for the one who would offer pardon from iniquity, as Isaiah said, and comfort for his people. St. Athanasius, he wrote 1,700 years ago in his book on the Incarnation, he wrote this, It was our sorry case that caused the word to come down, our transgression that called out his love for us so that he made haste to help us and to appear among us. And so Jesus, in the Incarnation, he meets us in our grief, in our affliction, in our sin. He climbs into the casket of our fallen human condition. That's what the incarnation is. He he climbs into our experience. God become flesh. And he offers us redemption from our troubles. He is the consolation. He is the comfort. Let's continue in the passage together. Verse 26. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So verse 25 says the Holy Spirit's upon Simeon. And then in verse 26, we read that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ, until he had seen the Messiah. So there's this prophetic feeling about Simeon. He has the Holy Spirit. He has knowledge that is not readily available to everyone. He's been spoken to by God. And this knowledge is that he wouldn't die. He wouldn't taste death until he had seen the Messiah the Lord's Christ. And so let's continue in the passage, verse 27. And so he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, so this is Simeon, and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. 
And so Simeon's walking in the Spirit. He's keeping in step with the Spirit. He enters the temple to meet this Messiah and to have all of his hopes and his dreams fulfilled. But we shouldn't move too quickly past the first phrase. He took him up in his arms and blessed God. Simeon was holding God. The one who was upholding all things by the word of his power was being held by a creature that he, in that moment, himself was upholding. Get your mind wrapped around that. Simeon was holding someone who, as C.S. Lewis said, was bigger than our whole world. What a tremendous mystery the incarnation is. It's a mind-boggling reality. The word who existed before all time learned to speak as a baby. The omnipotent, eternal God who has all power in heaven and on earth learned to walk as a toddler. God in flesh, God with us. Consider these words from Thomas Watson. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. That the ancient of days should be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman, and of that woman which he himself made, that the branch should bear the vine, that the mother should be younger than the child she bore, and the child in the womb bigger than the mother. This is not only amazing, but miraculous. I believe the challenge anytime we consider the incarnation is to never let the mystery and the wonder become so familiar that we're apathetic to it, that's a, that's a human tendency. Familiarity bring, brings apathy. We assume things. We take things for granted. This is something that we should never, never take for granted. The incarnation is a mystery that we can never fully understand. And yet we can stand back and wonder and enjoy and revel in the goodness of God taking on flesh for our salvation. And we join with Simeon as he blesses God. But notice what he says here in verses 29 through 31. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. His life was complete. Not when he had accomplished something, but when God had accomplished something. He had simply seen God work with the eyes of faith, and his life ambition was fulfilled. Simeon's faith became sight. His life was complete, not when he accomplished something, but when God accomplished something. He had simply seen God work and could thus meet death and even long for death. The implication as you read this, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. There's this longing. Those who have seen Christ with the eyes of faith and have their life ambition fulfilled. Matthew Henry, a, a classic common commentator on the whole Bible, but particularly here in the, in the Gospel of Luke, said it this way, those who have welcomed Christ can welcome death. The story of salvation hadn't ended, but from Simeon's perspective, it was as good as done because God had acted decisively. And the challenge, I believe, for us here is, do you share, do we share, do I share that perspective? 
Is our life ambition so wrapped up in the work of God that at any moment our lives can end in peace knowing that it's God's work that matters, not ours? Now, in another sense, we're called to specific things. But in, in the most ultimate sense, the sense that the catechism question brought to mind this morning, is our wealth in the cross, is our wealth in Christ, or is our wealth here on earth? Is our ambition something that is short-sighted and temporal, or is our ambition something that is wrapped up in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? The story of salvation hadn't ended, but from Simeon's perspective, it was as good as done. He didn't see the cross. He didn't see the resurrection. He didn't see the ascension. He didn't wait for 2,000 years like we have as the church for the second coming of Christ. But from his perspective, all of that was as good as done because God had acted decisively. He had fulfilled his promise that he himself would step into human history and correct what was broken, offer pardon, offer forgiveness. We'll come back to that thought as we conclude. Look down at verses 30 through 32. These verses strongly reflect a theme that is found throughout the whole Testament. The salvation of God will be revealed as glory for Israel and a light for all the world. Isaiah, just listen to these verses. I'll read them kind of rapid fire here. Isaiah 49.6, speaking of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 52.10, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 60 verse 3, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Psalm 98.3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so Jesus, in fulfillment of God's promise for thousands of years, has come as the means of salvation for all the world. He is the pinnacle of the nation of Israel, the glory of Israel. And he's the one who lights the darkness for all those who have lived in the shadow of death and sin. And as a comforting Savior, his message of repentance and hope is for all People, consider the words of Christ from Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's the consolation, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. For all who recognize their own sin, their own helplessness, the message is the same. Turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin and enter the light of his salvation. He's our consolation. He's our comfort. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. Continue reading here, verses 33 through 35. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And just consider your surprise if you were in the position of Joseph or Mary, and you walk into the temple and somebody snatches your 40-day-old baby out of your hands and, and prophesies, blesses God and prophesies and holds him up and says, I've now, I can now die in peace. Marvel is an appropriate response. Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. That's a difficult saying, the fall and rising of many 
in Israel. Uh, the, the New Testament is clear that, that some will be drawn to Christ and some will stumble over Christ. There will be two responses and only two responses to the person of Christ. Either you will receive him as Lord and Savior, Savior or you will reject him. And so what Simeon is doing here is prophesying in the Spirit what will happen as the ministry of Christ unfolds. Verse 35, speaking to Mary specifically, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Commentators throughout the centuries have interpreted this as Simeon envisioning Mary at the foot of the cross some 30 years later, watching a spear pierce the side of her son and hearing the words, it is finished, come from his lips. A sword will pierce your soul also. Finishing verse 35, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This ties in with verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. For some sitting in darkness, a light of revelation brings hope. For some sitting in darkness, a light of revelation brings judgment. The thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. All, as Hebrews 4 says, will be naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I'd like to make a few minutes of application from this text as we finish today. What does this mean for us? How should this affect our lives and the way we think? And I want to sum it up in two points. First is this, wait for Christ. And the second is, work for the kingdom. I want to read you a series of passages from the New Testament that call us to this same mindset that Simeon had. Advent is about reliving and reenacting the anticipation that the saints had for thousands of years as they waited for the first coming of Christ. And even as we relive and we reenact, we're called to the same mindset, one of anticipation. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a way in which we're in the same position as Simeon. There's a way in which our experience as Christians uh, runs parallel to his experience as an Old Testament saint. We're still waiting. We saw the completed work of Christ on the cross. We saw his glorious resurrection, and now we wait for his return. Christ has come, and Christ is coming. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, that's in the past, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, that's now. But what are we supposed to be doing? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jude, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You could, any book in the New Testament, open up, you're going to find a call. You're going to find an exhortation to wait for the return of Christ. And so as Christians, we are called to a life attitude of eager expectation for the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh again. Our lives are to be characterized by anticipation for his return. And I think the challenge for us, the question that this asks us is, is that the case? Can you honestly say that your life is my life characterized by hopeful anticipation of the return of Christ? 
Now, on one hand, I think we're, we're eager for the results of that, and that's not wrong. We're eager for wars to end, that's relevant. We're eager for sickness to end, that's relevant. We're eager for there to be no more tears or crying or pain anymore. We're eager for that day, but are we eager for Christ? Simeon held Christ and it was over for him. It was, his life ambition was complete. Are we eager for the person or are we eager for the results? And this challenges us to be eager for the person because the results are meaningless without the person and the results are impossible without the person. There's a way in which Simeon is a prototype of all Christians. So he lives right at the end of the Old Testament era, right at the beginning of the New Testament era. And there's a way in which he, he acts as an example for us, as a prototype. Simeon's faith became sight. So will yours. We eagerly await the coming of Christ, all the while knowing that we have seen him, we've benefited from him, we've experienced his grace, and we can therefore die in peace. He waited, but he didn't see the end of the matter. He didn't even see the cross. We do the same. Every generation of Christians has believed that Christ would return in their lifetime. And guess what? Every generation of Christians so far has been wrong. But we should still believe that. Because Christ will return. As surely as he did come once, he will come again. And so we should be characterized by an anticipation that he's coming back tomorrow. That's our call. But our lives are not just to be characterized by waiting, and this is branching out beyond this passage, I'll admit that. They're also to be characterized by working. This is not just a passivity. This is not something where we sit and we wait and we hope and we don't do anything. We're not to be idle. We wait, and while we wait, we work. 1 Timothy 4, have nothing to do with irreverent myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We wait, but we work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 5.15 and 16, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. One of the most encouraging verses in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so as we work, we recognize that our small, seemingly inconsistent, you know, our small, um, incremental acts of faithfulness as we share the gospel, as we faithfully parent our kids, as we love our spouses, as we pray with a friend, these things matter. That's what God has called us to. God uses your effort for the glory of his name, for the growth of his kingdom in ways that you may never see. And so the exhortation from this passage is that we don't lose heart, we wait. His second coming is as certain as his first, and that as we wait, we work, knowing that God is at work. But ultimately, all of our waiting, all of our working is 
to one end, the glory of Christ. Our life ambition should be the same as Simeon, tied up completely in Christ, his work and his return. At any given moment, we can die in peace, not because we have accomplished something, but because Christ has on our behalf. Let me close with these words from Jude, verses 24 and 25, and then I'll pray for us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are challenged by the truth of your word. We are challenged by the example of Simeon and his his anticipation, his life ambition being so wrapped up in the work of your son Jesus that his life could end at only having seen him. We're challenged by that, we're convicted by that, because oftentimes our ambitions are wrapped up in lesser things. And so, Lord, we pray that you would You would focus our hearts, you would focus our minds, you would focus our eyes on the things of eternity in such a way that our lives are characterized by eager expectation for the second coming of your son Jesus. And all the while, I pray that you would give us power to work, that you would give us energy to work for your kingdom, to not sit idly but to make the best use of the time, knowing that the days are evil. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.